Romans chapter 12, starting, starting in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word, that you would be pleased to just turn on the lights so that we see the truth, Father, so that we love the truth, so that we rejoice over it, so that we repent before it in ways we need to. Father, we pray specifically for us that we would not be a people who think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Father, that we would not be some kind of prideful and foolish people who don't recognize that our need for you and for your body. But we'd be a people who know that we need you and know that we need your body, your church. That we would desire to fulfill our calling within it. For your glory we pray, amen. I know there are a lot of people um, out there who, some of you guys who are singles. Some of, most of you are married, but some of you who are married remember being singles. Um, and and I, one of the things I notice in working with a lot of single people is that uh, especially the guys, I'm going to mostly pick on the guys here at the beginning and not the gals, so you know. But one of the things I notice is there are all these guys who want all these benefits of marriage. They want to date girls, you know, spend time with them, hang out with them. They even want to physically get involved with them in some ways. They want the benefits of marriage. But what they don't really want is the commitment that comes with the covenant of marriage. You know, God relates through covenants. It's how he relates to us, through covenants. God makes a covenant with us. He commits things to us, promises things to us, and then in response to those promises, those covenants, we are then told that there are things that we do in participating in that covenant. And we are to make or to relate with others in the same way. That's why God gave us the covenant of marriage. That's how we relate to one another. But men, for some reason, in larger and larger or greater and greater proportions, men don't seem to want to covenant with women. They don't seem to want to make a commitment. Because as soon as they're called on for a commitment, they might mess around with a girl for years. They might hang out with her, date her, get all emotionally and physically tied up with her for months or years. And as soon as that girl starts talking about commitment, they start having all these concerns about her, don't they? Well, I'm not so sure she's the one for me. I, I don't know what I think about her. You know, she's got this problem. She can be a little needy. See how she's pushing me for a commitment? She's not needy in pushing you for a commitment, guys. She's supposed to be in a committed marital relationship with men that she's involved with in the way that you often want to be involved with her. But the guys are like, you know, all of a sudden, as soon as the girl asks for commitments, they start noticing all these flaws. Oh, look at she's got this problem. She's got that problem. I see this thing in her life. Now I'm concerned about all those things. And oftentimes a girl gets broken up with, and she's like, all of a sudden, she's like, 
what's the problem? And he gives her this sort of, well, it's not you, it's me. And then he calls all his friends, and what does he tell his friends? Well, you know, that she had this problem, and she had that problem. And, and you're wondering, why didn't you see those a long time ago before you got that deeply involved in a relationship with her? And his answer is, basically comes down to complete nonsense because what leads his problem is an elevated view of himself. He's full of pride. So he can engage in selfishness. So he can engage in this relationship with this other woman. He can participate in activities with her that ought to be emotionally and physically tied to the marriage covenant. He can do all that, and then he can later say, I'm out of here because he's selfish and prideful. Because all of a sudden he notices all these flaws. And as he goes, well, you know what? I just don't know if I could live with those things my whole life. Really? Do you think that there aren't things she sees about you that she doesn't want to live with her whole life? They kind of have this Goldilocks syndrome, don't they? Oh, this, this porridge is too cold. This porridge is too hot. And they're out there looking for the porridge that's just right, and they never find it. They never find it because they can't find just right because they have so elevated themselves, they are so intensely prideful and selfish that they can't find a woman to settle down with. Listen, men, stop looking for the porridge that's just right and pick a woman and marry her. I I just spoke with a guy not too long ago who told me he was 95% sure that this girl was for him. What does that mean? 95, I'm married, I'm not sure if we're 95% sure, right, Teresa? 95% is high, isn't it, married couples? Get married. 95%, that's an A, that's an A+. Get married. Golly. Here's the thing, that same problem exists, that same problem exists in the way people relate to the church, Say, oh, you just picked on a group of guys. Yeah, but I did it all to point you to one problem. People date the church. They look around, they shop around for the just right church. And every time they get close to a relationship with the church, they have suddenly problems. Well, I can experience the benefits of the services of that church. I can be involved in, in, in relationships with people in that church. I can get all these blessings from that church I can even, to some extent, get involved in serving that church. But as soon as that church calls on me for a commitment to her, I'm out of here because there's flaws with that church. You know, those leaders, I'm not so sure about them. There's some other people. I think this service is, you know, they don't have exactly the music I want or whatever it is. The porridge isn't just right. And it's not just right because you're selfish and you're prideful. That's why it's not just right. Paul wants us, Paul wants us to cease thinking pridefully as the world does. He wants us to think or cease thinking pridefully as the world does. And instead to recognize our need for Christ and his body, for Christ and his church. He wants us to recognize our need for it. In fact, Paul uses strong words indicating that we are actually prideful fools, that we are crazy if, we, if our minds are not renewed with regard to our own weaknesses and our, needs for other, our need for others in the body. So today I want to point out three thought patterns. You ready? Three thought patterns. That's it. Three thought patterns of prideful fools that we need to avoid falling into. Three thought patterns of prideful fools fools that we need to avoid falling into. Here's the first one. You are a prideful fool if you think you don't need Jesus. 
Hear that? You are a prideful fool if you think you don't need Jesus. And by the way, I am not just talking to the unbelievers in the room. Because for some reason, we as Christians can often get off on this bandwagon which we think that Christianity is the front door, the gospel is the front door to the house, but then Christianity is the rest of this house that has nothing to do with Jesus anymore. It's the gospel. Now I'm in the door, and now I live by law, and I start comparing myself with other Christians and recognize, you know, I'm stronger in this and that than they are, and I start to elevate myself among them and start to pick at them because I miss the fact that I need Jesus just as much as any of them do. So Paul says this, you're a prideful fool if you think you don't need Jesus. Look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me. Now Paul is actually going to say, I'm going to speak based on the grace given to me. I say to everyone among you, he's speaking to everyone in the church in Rome. I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober Judgment. Notice he uses the word think four times. Say that, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That last phrase, sober judgment, is actually the word think again. Use again. Four times he uses the word think. Coming off of Romans 12, 2, where he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he says, you want me to apply that specifically to your situation? You want me to tell you what it looks like to have a renewed mind? You stop thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but instead you think of yourself with sound thinking. Four times he drives at it. It, it, uh, You know, it's, it's so drastic, the language he uses here, the way he uses think. It doesn't actually even translate over all that well into the Greek. But... A.T. Robertson, one of the great Greek scholars of the last couple centuries, he said this, that basically what Paul does, and this is how he explains it, says that self-conceit here is treated as a species of insanity. In other words, what we're doing is when we're participating in self-conceit, when we're thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, Paul's actually saying that kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that concludes you don't need Jesus. The kind of thinking that concludes you don't need the body of Christ, you don't need the church. The kind of thinking that concludes that you don't need to serve with the grace that God has given you in the body of Christ. That kind of thinking is a species of insanity. It's complete prideful foolishness. It is a way more exalted thought of yourself than you ought to have. He goes on after he says with sober judgment, he makes this last phrase, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now the measure of faith here is not referring to the amount of faith you have. What he's not saying is, I want you to think of yourself according to the amount of faith you have, what God's given you, okay? Because then you're gonna think of yourself more highly than others, aren't you? God's given me a greater amount of faith than he's given other people. The, the measure of faith that God has assigned here is, is the word measure is referring to the standard. It's the idea of a standard. The standard of our faith. The standard of his faith that God has assigned. And what's the standard of a faith that God has assigned? It's the gospel. 
It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the standard of our faith. You want to think of yourself not more highly than you ought to think, but thinking of yourself with sound judgment, then think of yourself in light of the gospel. And what does the gospel declare to you? What does the cross tell you? At the cross, you see divine justice and the love of God come together, don't you? Simultaneously at work at the cross. As the cross says to you that you are far more sinful than you ever thought. Far more. You are so sinful that God has to crucify his only son just to relate to you. That's how sinful we are. Does that not humble you when you see the cross? That God couldn't come along and say, you know what? It's all all right. Uh, You're a good person. Your good deeds outweigh your bads. I can now relate to you without any of this kind of crucifixion stuff. So he does, does he? He says, your sin is so abhorrent, it is so sinful that I must crucify my son. It must be paid for at the cross. There is the most brutally hideous picture of God's assessment of you that you can ever find. You want God's assessment of you in and of yourself? Look at the cross. Look at him who bled there, who died there. That's God's assessment of you in and of yourself and your sin. At the same time, the cross is a declaration of the love of God that is far, far more great, far more gracious, far more promiscuous than you ever imagined. Because while you're that person that God has to kill his son to save, You are that person who God chose to kill his son to save. That God loves you so much that he would kill his son to save you. So when we look at the standard of our faith, we know that to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think is a complete sham, don't we? We recognize a total sham. For me to walk into a church body where, and and I'm going to make some qualifications, a church body where the gospel is being rightly preached, where the Bible is being taught, expounded upon, okay? Where the, the character of the leaders, they're not disqualified because they're in some sort of gross, unrepentant sin. In other words, for me to walk into several of the very good gospel preaching, Bible teaching, Jesus-loving, elder qualified churches in this city for me to walk into most of them and sit around i'm saying all the churches that way but those that are good for me to walk into them and sit around and go you know i'm just not sure if this church is good enough for me because i'm not sure their women's program is exactly what i'm looking for and and then i go to the next church and i'm not sure if their children's program and i go to the next church and i'm not sure if their music is exactly what i want and then the next i'm not sure if i'm not sure if i'm not sure if and i go down the list and i have this box and i can never ever find a church that I can check all the boxes so I never ever land at one that demonstrates I do not understand the gospel because I'm holding other people to a standard I would never hold myself to. My kids like to watch a show called Hannah Montana. You guys, you guys watch that show? Hannah Montana, I, I like it, I'm not gonna lie. At first, when I th- saw it, Randy Lovegreen, one of our elders, said, it's a great show, really, watch it with your kids. And at first, I thought, what kind of man that is Randy's size watches Hannah Montana? And then, as a man his size, I know what kind does. This, this man that's Randy's size watches Hannah Montana. Started watching with my kids, 
And they, they told me, hey, Daddy, I want you to watch this commercial. There was a commercial break, and this commercial came on. They want you to watch it. And I was like, okay, I'd never seen it. And it's this Disney commercial, and it's very dramatic, and it's telling you all these things to believe and to think. And at the end, it has this very dramatic point where it says, believe, and then wait for it, wait for it. Next screen, in yourself. And my kids go, Daddy, say, that's a lie. We're not supposed to believe in ourselves. We're supposed to believe in God. And I want to tear up and cry. Yes, you're right, children. You're right. Right? But our culture tells us that we are to believe in ourselves. Even our church culture often says we're to believe in ourselves. We're to esteem ourselves more highly. We're to think well of ourselves. Listen to what Jesus says about how we are to think about ourselves. Keep your hand in Romans 12 and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to look at verse 9. Luke 18, we're going to look at verse 9. Now I want you to think about this passage in light of the modern self-esteem movement, the the modern sort of, you know, complete, total, positive thinking, exalt myself movement that's going on, and in light of our own tendency to be religious moralists who think that we're better than other people out there. I want you to think of it in light of this. Look at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Hear that phrase? Jesus is going to tell a parable to those who trust in themselves. That they were righteous. They thought they were righteous. Good. And treated others with contempt. As a result of their self-righteousness, they treated others contemptuously. And he says this. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Why is this important setup? First of all, because a Pharisee is a religious moral leader of the day. Respected in the community. Believed the whole Old Testament. Believed in the resurrection of the dead. Believed in angels and demons. Believed in the entire thing. That's why they fought with the Sadducees, who were the religious liberals of the day. Who only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. The the book of Moses, the Pentateuch. They only believed in that. They denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied angels and demons. They denied the supernatural. The Pharisees were were the the leaders of the people. The Sadducees were the religious elitists. Either way, these are the religious leaders. These are the good, conservative, Bible-believing pastors. That's the Pharisees. Who are the tax collectors? The tax collectors, on the other hand, are the, the people who have betrayed their people. They are those who have essentially, in the minds of the people, whored themselves out to Rome for their own personal gain, who are fleecing the people for their own wealth. They're the bottom of the barrel. You understand that? With Jesus' audience. They're as bad as it gets. Pharisees, the religious leaders, moral, Bible-believing, tax collectors, bottom of the barrel. Who has the right to come before God and pray? what Jesus says. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. See, this is how we respond to life. You, you might not think you do. You know, you get in a fight with your wife. You don't ever say this out loud, but what you're thinking is, God, I thank you I'm not like that woman. She doesn't have it together at all. Thank God I do. I'm going to point it out to her. I'm going to show her what she's got wrong. 
We go into our churches. God, I thank you I'm not like these flawed people. I can't ever commit to being in a relationship with them because I thank you I'm not like them. We, I've got it all together. They don't, obviously. God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, here's what Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, Jesus says is, you have to recognize, you want to be justified, you want to be declared righteous and forgiven, you have to recognize your utter spiritual bankruptcy. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, blessed is he who is poor in spirit. What poverty of spirit. Who recognizes his spiritual bankruptcy. For why? His is, theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Hear that? Belongs to them. Who does heaven belong to? Who does mercy given to? Given to those who recognize their spiritual poverty, their bankruptcy, their need, and recognize that God is the only gracious one who can do it. But we have teachers out there who are teaching the the exact opposite. I mean the exact opposite. They're out there teaching that we need to embrace we need to embrace ourselves better. We need, to, we need to embrace the champion within, right? We need to find the positive message that God has for us. One of them who is the most popular, and I'm just going to name him because his, he's gone so far off the reservation at this point that I don't even put him in the Christian category, although he has the largest quote-unquote Christian church in America, is named Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen essentially preached, become a better you is one of his book titles. I wanted to just change it to become a better Jesus. Self-savior, right? Because that's essentially what he's preaching. He's got, you know, um, all all kinds of things. But here's, somebody went and said, you know what, I'm going to take Joel Osteen's theology and I'm going to change this parable to match up to what Joel Osteen teaches. So here's what the outcome of that is. And Jesus told this parable to certain ones who thought poorly of themselves and showed contempt to themselves by refusing to find the champion within Two men went into the temple to pray. One was a successful pastor of a megachurch. The other was an unvictorious sinner who worked for the IRS. The successful pastor stood and prayed about himself and used positive self-talk to affirm the victories of his life. I thank you, God, that I'm so wonderful, that I'm more than a conqueror, that I'm not burdened with negative thoughts, that I have a number one best-selling book, and that unlike the IRS agent over there, I'm a victor instead of a victim, and that my bank account is filled to overflowing. But the IRS agent standing some distance away, dwelled on negative thoughts of guilt and shame. He wouldn't embrace the champion within, but instead could only look at the ground and feel bad for himself. He prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus then proclaimed, I tell you that God would not listen to that IRS agent because he refused to live in victory. For everyone who humbles himself will be rejected and everyone who exalts himself will be exalted even higher. That's essentially the outcome of that kind of teaching. Let me tell you what Paul is not saying, though, when he's telling you to humble yourself and recognize your spiritual bankruptcy. Here's what he's not saying. One, he's not saying that you should falsely minimize God's grace of gifting in your life. He's not saying that. 
He's not saying you should falsely minimize God's grace of gifting in your life. How do I know that? If you're in Romans 12 and you look down at verse 6, Paul makes a statement, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We've been given different gifts of grace and to some extent to different measures. And we're supposed to use them. Not say, like, ah, I don't have anything to contribute to the church. I'm useless. No, that's not true. If you're in Christ, his spirit is in you and is gifting you to serve the body. Your gift and my gift may be very different. But it is false humility to walk around acting like I don't have a gift. Because what it's doing is it's actually saying that the spirit of God is not powerful enough to do anything in my life. That's not humility, that's pride. Two, he's not saying that you should falsely minimize God's grace in spiritually maturing you. Do you hear that? He's not saying you should falsely minimize God's grace in spiritually maturing you or in sanctifying you. I see believers often doing this. They think that, well, it would be wrong for me to suggest, it's wrong, like I've met with guys and I've told them, they said, well, you struggle with this too. And I'm like, actually I don't. You don't struggle with this sin? No. How could that be? I don't know. I used to, but the Spirit of God worked. That can't be. Yeah, it actually can. It happened. Really, believe me. No, 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 no. And they argue with me. You're being prideful, they'll say. No, I'm not being prideful. I'm recognizing the work of the Spirit in my life by the grace of God. I'm not saying that I figured this out and you haven't because I'm somehow better than you. That isn't the point. God has graciously worked in me in this area. I'm thankful for that. He certainly hasn't worked to me to the point where I'm sin-free, far from it. I got plenty of sin. But in this one way, God has worked, and I'm proud of that. I'm thankful for that. Not proud of myself, but for what he's done. I'm thankful for what he's done. How do I know that this is the case? If you look at Romans chapter 14 and verse 1. Romans chapter 14 and verse 1. Paul's talking to the Roman church, and he tells those who are stronger in the faith... As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. How do you know if someone's weak in the faith if you don't recognize that the grace of God has made you stronger in the faith in some way? Look at chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong, we are strong, he's talking about growth and grace here, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Why do we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak? Because it's only by the grace of God that we're strong. That's it. Not because of anything in and of ourselves. God's grace has been at work in us in a way that it has not yet been in that person. So we have an obligation to bear with them. D.A. Carson asked the question, do do you ever, he's a scholar by the way, if you don't care who he is, that's fine. He writes tons of books. He's the smartest man maybe alive. But do you ever say to, do do you you ever say to a young Christian, this is what he asks, do you want to know what Christianity is like? Watch me. She says, he asks that question. Do you ever say to a young Christian, you want to know what Christianity is like? Watch me. And then he goes on and says, if you never do, if you never say that to a young Christian, you're unbiblical. The Apostle Paul called for others to follow his example. 1 Corinthians 4, 15-17, he said this. You don't have to turn to these. Just, just listen. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. 
That is why I sent you to Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Philippians 3.17. Brothers, join in imitating me, Philippians 4.9. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I can go on and on and on. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 11. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. Hear that? Again and again and again, Paul points to the fact the grace of God has been active in me. And it is false humility. It is false humility for me to deny that. It is denying what God has done by his spirit. So Paul is not saying, when he's saying be humble, he is not saying that you are supposed to deny the work of God in your life. Hear that? He's not saying you're supposed to sit around and go all the time, oh, look at me, I have nothing to offer. I'm not growing at all in my faith. If that's true, I would question whether the grace of God is at work in you at all. Second, second, we understand the gospel is our standard. We understand the gospel is our standard. And that we're crazy to be prideful. What does that have to do with the church? What does it do with the church? So here's the second point. You are a prideful fool. You are a prideful fool if you think you don't need Jesus' church. Hear that? You're a prideful fool if you think you don't need Jesus' church. Look at verse 4 and 5 of chapter 12. For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Notice that first word, for. He starts this with for as. He's making a connection. What's he driving at? He's driving the fact that we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves, but according to the standard of faith we've been given, according to our need for the gospel, and as a result of the gospel, we are all one body. We're one body with many members, yes. One body with many members who all have different functions, yes. But no less members of the one body of Christ. In other words, if you don't understand that you're a member of Christ's body, that you're in Christ and thus members of one another, if you don't believe that you need the rest of the body and because of the grace of God in you that they need you then you're a prideful fool you're a crazy thinking person you're committing mental insanity is what Paul's saying to be in Christ to be in Christ to be united to Christ through faith is to be in Christ's body it's not only to belong to Jesus but to belong to one another. Do you hear that? You not only belong to Jesus, but you belong to one another. We are individually members of one another. So how do we get from there, from what Paul says in verse 3 and 4, how do we get from there to this idea of people thinking they don't need the church? How did that happen? How do we get from texts like these to those who date the church like some kind of spiritual players? For those of you who were born before the 70s, some kind of spiritual gigolos, right? 
How do we do that? Because people practice one of the following errors. You ready? They practice one of the following errors, or believe one of the following errors. One, they're too prideful. They are too prideful to ever submit to other men. That's one way it happens. Too prideful to ever submit to other men. Why? Because they don't trust God's sovereignty. They don't recognize their own need of mercy in their life. That's why. So they hate authority and can never trust others to lead them because they're not humble enough to recognize that maybe, maybe these men have flaws, but they're probably further along than they are. Two, they're too selfish to ever give themselves to other people. So they're too prideful to ever submit themselves to other men. They're too selfish to ever give themselves to other people because they don't trust God's provision and they don't recognize his gracious provision in their own lives. See, if you understand the grace that you've been given, if you understand that, you really can't help but want to share it with others. Further, if you know God's provision, you don't need to hold on to your own time and talent and treasure, do you? You can give it away because God's given me everything, all the riches that are his in Christ. I can give away the time, talent, and treasure I have. I don't need to hold on to it. I can give myself to other people. Three, they're confused. This is those of you who I'm, there's a category for those of you who just, you're not in church membership. It's somewhere not because of pride or selfishness, but just because you're confused about the nature of the church. Haven't been well taught. Confused about the nature of the church because you wrongly assume that Paul is generally talking about the universal church when he talks about the church. That every time Paul uses this word, ecclesia, he's talking about the universal church. This idea of, you know, when I say the universal church, all those who are spiritually in Christ, all those who believe, believers everywhere. But that's what he's talking about every time he uses that idea or that word. What you don't know is that the vast majority of the time, in fact, almost every time with about two or three instances, that Paul uses the word ecclesia, he's talking about what? The local church. Every time he says church, he's talking about the local church with a few, a few exceptions. By the local visible church, not the universal invisible group of believers all over the world. And when he talks about the functions of the church, it's in the local visible church that you partake in baptism. Baptism happens where you partake in communion together, where you have identified elders and deacons, where the church discipline occurs, where you take an offering, where you have regular meetings, where you're assembled, as it says in Acts over and over, they came together, they were assembled together. Where you pay, where you pay some elders, 1 Timothy 5.17, where you make lists of widows to care for in the body, where you're commanded to use your gifts to serve one another. These are just some examples of the things that are listed in the New Testament that happen in the church. That doesn't happen in a universal, invisible church. That happens in a local, visible church. But for some reason, we've thrown all of that into the idea of the universal church and missed the fact that these necessitate necessitate a local church. Every New, Test- New Testament epistle is written to a local church, isn't it? with the exception of maybe Hebrews. There's a couple of the pastorals that are written to Timothy or Titus, but they're written to Timothy or Titus to do work in local churches. 
The letters in Revelation, the seven churches of Revelation, are all local churches that are being addressed. Visible churches. Now we can argue that the bride of Christ is universal and invisible, that it's everyone who believes everywhere in the world, we don't know who all that, that's fine, but the church is expected to be visible and local. It's expected to gather together, to set up discipline, to set up elders and deacons, to participate in communion and baptism. It's commanded to do those things, to serve one another. Which really leads to maybe three questions that people often ask me when they don't understand what I'm talking about with membership. They always ask me these three questions. They ask this, why do we call it membership? Why do you call it church membership? It sounds like I'm joining a country club. Right? We call it membership because the biblical word in Romans 12 is member. You're a member of a body. To be a member of something means you're in membership. It's that simple. That's why we use that word. It's just nice to use the word that the Bible is used. Right? Two, if I'm in membership in the universal and invisible church already, why do I need to become a member of a visible and local church? That's what they ask me. Well, if you believe in Christ, then you are a member, you're right, you are a member of the universal and invisible church. You are. Which is precisely why you're expected to work that truth out through membership in a local and visible church. Nowhere do you have permission to not live out your Christian faith as a member of a local invisible body. Nowhere. In fact, it's sheer arrogance and disobedience not to. Third, then, well, then why does the church need a formal membership program? That's fine. I understand you need to be a part of church membership then in a local visible church. Okay, I understand that. But why do you need a formal membership program in which we covenant together in church membership? Why do we need that? Why can't, I mean, if I'm already a member of the universal and invisible church, why can't I just walk into another, some local visible church and just participate? Why can't I just attend and function as a part of the local church? Why do I need to take a step further? Why do you guys do all this membership stuff? I'm constantly asked that question. Two reasons. First, we have several local churches in this town. Several local visible churches in this town. And the only way we can establish who's committing to join the mission of this church to serve and contribute financially to this church, to participate in accountability in this church, to be under the spiritual leadership and discipline of the group of leaders or elders in this church is through a formal process. Let me give you an example. If we were going to discipline you for some sin and we had to stand up in front of the congregation and talk to the congregation about the fact that some sin happened, would you like that to happen at a membership meeting where we gather the members of this church who are gathered together to take place? Or ought we, since we're talking about the universal invisible church in most people's minds, ought we just to bring a video camera in here and shoot it across the TBN satellites across the world? Right? So that the whole universal invisible church can be there for your discipline. Obviously that has to happen in a local church. Can I discipline members? Can we get our elders together and say, I see a brother sinning over at this other church in town. Let's call him in and talk to him about it. No, absolutely not. He's not under the spiritual authority of this church. When I stand before God, am I spiritually accountable for the universal church? Hebrews 13, 17 says I'm accountable for the church. What church? The local church. That has an identified group of members that have committed to one another. Second, God only relates to us through covenants. God only relates to us through covenants. And throughout the Bible, the pattern of human relationships is set up through covenants. Therefore, in keeping with the biblical pattern, 
We covenant together to care for one another. That's why we do it. Why do we covenant together? Because we want to follow the pattern that God has set. God covenants with people. That's how he relates. It's pretty good to do things the way God does them. Right? The way he sets up human patterns to do it. So we follow his lead. Okay. Third. I've got to jump ahead. Third. I want to say this, this third major point. Not only are you a prideful fool if you don't believe in or think you need Jesus, and a prideful fool if you don't think you need Jesus' church, but you're a prideful fool if you think you don't, if, excuse me, if you don't think, if you don't think that you should extend the grace shown to you to others. That? Prideful fool if you do not think that you, if you do not think that you should take the grace that's been extended to you and extend it to others. Look at verse 6 of Romans 12. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Hear that? We're each given gifts by the grace of God. Each of us. Every single one of us. And we should use them. Should use them. Now, Paul is not providing here an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts, okay? This isn't all of them. If you go to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you get some more. If you go to Ephesians 4, you get some more. If you go to 1 Peter 4, you get, you get more. There's more than just what Paul lists here. But there is an interesting pattern with what he lists here. He, he, he lists gifts really in two different ways. In two different ways in which people minister the body. The first kind of way is he, he lists word gifts. In other words, three different kinds. He actually had the seven gifts he lists. Three of them are word gifts. And four of them are sort of the physical service kind of gifts. What, what, are, what do we mean by word gifts? Um, one, of, one of my friends who's a pastor... Um, and of, of, a, of a much larger church than, than Sovereign Grace. Uh, his name is uh, Mark Driscoll. He has sites that are bigger than us, okay? So I think his, his you know, membership classes are larger. But the, uh, the point is, is that he, he, he talks about the air war and the ground war of the church. Just breaks that real simple. When you're in a battle, you have an air war and you have a ground war. The air war, he says, in the church is the word gifts. This is the way you speak the truth. The, these are the gifts of the elders and pastors. That's the gift of prophecy, which is taking the immediate revelation of God and applying it to the cultural situation. The gift of teaching, which is explaining the sense of the text. The gift of exhorting, which is knowing how to take the word of God and then encourage you with it to bring you to action. Those are the gifts that belong under the air war category, the, the war that the pastors and elders in the church participate in. Then there are the other gifts that are four serving gifts, or four deacon gifts. They're part of what Driscoll calls the ground war. That's the on-the-ground ministry of physical care. These are the Gifts that belong, in a sense, to the deacons. Right? Those who serve. In fact, the first word that Paul uses there when he uses the word those who have the gift of service, in their service, that word is the word we get deacon from. 
There's service, contribution, he says, lists there. What is, what is contribution? Service is to go out and care for the physical needs of people. Contribution, to contribute, is talking about the gift of giving. Some of you say, well, I don't have the gift of um, giving, so I don't need to give. No, that's not his point. I don't get to serving, so I don't need to serve. No, that's not his point. His point is, we're all involved in all of these, but some of us are gifted particularly in it. If you have the gift of giving, you give with joy. Everybody's called to give. You understand that? It's, I, I, in Malachi 3, I mean, it says if we don't give, if we don't participate in, in giving, that we're robbing God. So, I mean, pretty, pretty clear. In fact, so, so much so that I, I um, was talking to one of my buddies who said there's a pastor back east who actually taught through Malachi 3 and then gave his church a commitment card on giving. And it, he, on the commitment card, it had two checkboxes. Yes, I commit to give God what belongs to him. No, I commit to robbing God, right? <laughs> well, that's bold. I'm not going to do that um, ever. But we're all called to give, okay? We're all called to give. The issue is some people have been given more and have the desire to give it out. They're supposed to do so cheerfully. Some have given the gift of leadership. They just know how to get people going in a direction. That doesn't just belong to pastors. That belongs to deacons. That belongs to the service of the church as well. I've seen some of our women using it in developing a women's ministry. They're leading. It's good. Some have the gift of mercy. What is that? That's talking about caring for the needs of those who are physically ill and hurting. All of us are to do that. But some people have been particularly equipped to do that with cheerfulness. We're all supposed to do it with cheerfulness, but some of us are just, that's what we love. So we do it. The driving point in all of this is God has graced you for the purpose of serving the body in some way. And you're arrogant and foolish if you don't use the grace of God in your life to serve others. And if you don't think that you need others to use the grace of God in their lives to serve you. You know what I love is that we recognize that it's when the whole body works together that we're growing into full maturity. What I love is that we, we've been able to see this so many times on display in this church. Because oftentimes what happens is people expect the pastor to be the jack of all trades. Right? He's, he's supposed to be able to do it all. Until the pastor is unable to. And the rest of the body, in our case, had to take care of the pastor. Right? Fantastic to see that happening. The realization, he needs us as much as we need him. We all need each other. That's what Paul's going at. And to think that we don't need each other, to think that we don't need the grace of God, not only at the cross, but the grace of God that comes forth from that, informing Christ's body, that we don't need that, is arrogance, foolishness. It is wrong thinking, and Paul says that we need to renew our minds and think rightly about this. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the teaching of your word, that you would apply it to our hearts, to our lives, that we would be a people who recognize, recognize our desperate need for you and for your body, for your church that we recognize your grace at work in us and that we desire to share it with others and recognizing their need for us and our need for them. Father, we would overcome our arrogance, our pridefulness, 
our worldly thinking. We would not let the world conform us to its pattern of thought, but that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that we would approve the good and perfect and pleasing will of God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.